we've been going through a series uh, through the book of Philippians, and uh, we are a little over halfway through. This should take us well through, I don't know, Christmas of next year or something at the rate we're going. Uh, and it's been really, really a blessing to talk to other folks about how this has been impactful for you. Um, and I don't mean that like the sermons have necessarily been great. I mean that in the sense that uh, it's forced you to actually walk through a book and realize that certain passages that we read, we love to pull way out of context and slap it on a Hallmark card and then act like we know what it means when it's actually an ancient letter. It's written to a group of people and it's, you can make all sorts of verses say all sorts of crazy things uh, if you're not understanding what it's a part of. And so it's been really, really cool to hear some folks who have just been working through it and rereading Philippians. There's one gentleman who's uh, memorizing, like trying to memorize the whole book and just like put this stuff in his, in his heart and in his mind and letting this be central. It's really, really encouraging. And I mentioned that as like kind of a preface today because the verse that we are going to get at, I wasn't joking, is uh, this passage of, but the one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. This is one of those verses that tends to be pulled up out of context often. And in fact, as I was doing my like reading uh, two weeks back, just kind of uh, what have historians said about this and different scholars said about this, they're actually not all completely unified on exactly what he's letting go of or how he's letting go of. They're all pretty unified on what the main point of the scripture is and where he's going. But I actually want to this morning unpack sort of two different angles on what Paul's talking about. Because let's be honest, the way in which we could look at this passage really quickly is, okay, you've got a past, forget about the past, right? You can't control the past. Look toward the future. The future is bright with possibility. Amen. Have a great Sunday. Um, the issue here, though, isn't that Paul is uh, being confusing, the issue is that Paul's talking about forgetting his past, and if we look back at the beginning of this chapter, he actually spends a fair amount of time talking about his past. So it's interesting. Paul has an interesting way of talking about what it means to forget his past. So I want to read our passage. We have a tradition here at Sanctuary. I know many of you come from all sorts of different church traditions. Some of you haven't been to church in years. We totally get that. Uh, but we want to actually invite you, if you would, to stand. We have this sort of reverence towards Scripture. So even if you don't have reverence, I don't know, I just don't want you to feel awkward like sitting down while everyone else stands up. But you're more than welcome to sit if you like. Verse 12 of Philippians 3. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but the one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, at the beginning of this section, and last week, uh, I kind of did a, a flyover of all of the beginning of Philippians 3. I wanted to give an overview of what Paul was talking about. So Paul, again, our, our background again, next slide. Just for those of you who may be new or a bit forgetful, this where Philippi is. Philippi is a colony of Rome or an outpost of Rome. Philippi is a place that Rome has set up to further the politics, the way they run government, the social systems. Uh, they are setting up an outpost of the city of Rome, of the empire of Rome. 
This is important because Paul's in jail for saying, actually, it's not Rome, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is. He's actually saying, no, 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 who runs the world? Girls, no. He's, <laughs> you like that? That wasn't even in my notes. Who, <laughs> who runs, <laughs> coffee is that good. <laughs> He's saying who runs the world is actually Jesus. And so this actually gets you in trouble in, in, in ancient Roman times. This, he is not very patriotic, to say the least. His allegiance is somewhere else. We've talked a lot about this over the last five months leading up to this, of why Paul is saying what he's saying. Paul is really excited about this church. They're doing amazing things. He's been blessed by them. They've given to him. Uh, they've taken care of him. This was his church plant. And so the reason why we've chosen this outpost of love or outpost of the kingdom, outpost of heaven, outpost of justice language is because this is what we want to be as a church. We want to be an outpost of the way of Jesus. We want to, in a city like Providence, no matter what's going on, no matter what political pressures are on whoever, no matter what social pressures are on, we actually want to be and stand firm as an outpost of Jesus as opposed to being pushed in any other direction. This is our central focus. We are to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and all that comes with that, right? Demonstrating and announcing the good news of what Jesus is up to in the world. This is the big signpost of Easter, that Jesus is actually risen from the dead, is somehow mysteriously with us, and is guiding his church towards reclaiming and renewing the broken bits of creation. So with that, like, thoroughly, hopefully robust view of the gospel, Paul has been going through and saying, look, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to walk with Jesus. I want to encourage you because you guys are doing so well with this, 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 and this. And so when we arrive at this section, Paul is starting to head towards the like, final ramp up of the letter, saying all of this stuff I've been talking about, this is all aiming at this one thing. And so you've got to understand, we have one central focus here. And he talks about taking hold of the prize, taking hold of Jesus, knowing Jesus. All of this, some of it very mystical language, some of it very, very concrete. This is the point of all of it. And so when Paul says, forget what's behind him, again, our instinct to just say, okay, yeah, just let go of everything else, as if that's easy. I've realized that for some people, it's actually really is easy or easier. I was talking with my wife last night, and I was saying, talking about this passage a little bit. I was saying, I think I'm in some way almost, it feels like genetically predisposed to be very hopeful. Now, I don't know how much of that has to do with, like, what I've experienced in my life and a loving family. And I could make all sorts of theories about why it is. But I realized that the central thing has always been my understanding of this world is not all that there is. In the sense that God's reclaiming and going to renew all things. That, that actually my shame and my sin don't count against me. I can't remember a time where I didn't feel deep, passionate love. For me, the, the issue of shame has never been profound. I know this is really helpful for you. The reason why I was saying all this is that when I read Paul saying, look, it's not that I've like attained like knowing Jesus in every way and all the implications of what he's done, but I'm telling you, man, I am lockstep. I am like moving and I am forgetting what's behind. And I realize that for some of you, when you read that or when you hear that or when you hear me saying what I just said, you like feel like, you just feel like I am being obnoxious. You actually are, are, are going, yeah, that's great that that's somehow easy for you. And so I want to address the fact that Paul's version of forgetting his past is not like, it's not that. It's not, 
and just kind of like move forward in, in, in sort of a blindness. What Paul is doing is actually going back in and apparently talking about his past. So let's look at this. Paul, in a few verses before, says, look, let me tell you a little bit about who I am and why, like, every part of me uh, deserves sort of salvation. He's a Jewish rabbi. He is somebody who, who is a, a, or some sort of a prophet of sorts, even within the Jewish community. He is somebody who, with great zeal, has persecuted Christians, right? When this, this weird cult around Jesus was rising up, for those of you who are familiar with your history, and he was just saying, yeah, I, I was the one who was persecuting people. I was the one who, one who was born into the right bloodline. I was the one who was circumcised in the right sort of way by my parents, obviously. I was born the tribe of Benjamin, which not only am I in like the right tribe, but I'm actually like in the line of the kings. Like I'm at the top of my tribe. I was born into this. I was devoted to my tribe in such a way that I actually persecuted people who weren't in my tribe. Paul is saying, look, I was incredibly ethnocentric. I have everything together. I am a Jew of Jews. And remember, the Jewish people were the people who are going to be a blessing to the world. Right? Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. And Paul is saying, look, I was the one who thought I understood what was happening and that Jesus was actually the enemy of this, not the one who was the fulfillment of my entire people's walk. And so he, Paul is, is incredibly focused in on the fact that I am, or people are either egocentric, ethnocentric, or world-centric. And Paul is incredibly ethnocentric. Paul is zeroed in on the fact that, look, anybody outside of what I have done and who I am and my zeal and how I'm born into this community, I am the man. So Paul, in explaining all of these things, there's actually this weird both positive and negative tone. And this is where things get confusing in the text. Because Paul is saying, look, I forget what's behind me. In the one way he's saying, because what's behind me is actually great. Like I was like the most religious person ever. But what I have and what I've seen in Jesus and where this whole thing is going is so much better. It's far better than anything. So I don't count it as gain. So there's that happening. And then the other thing that's happening is actually this really negative stuff. Like he's writing to Christians. It'd be like me getting up and saying, hey guys, so I used to be like the most religious person ever. I used to kill people like you all the time. Because you guys are so clearly not in with, the, with like the Jewish law and, and his understanding of, again, what was true. So he can get up and write, write this letter to these people and say, I used to kill people like you for breakfast. And, 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 and there's the negative and the positive of this. So Paul, apparently, in looking back in his past, sees both. Paul sees the... His past says, there's some really amazing things that I actually have been a part of, that I'm, I am good in this way. I've adhered to the law, and actually I've done some really miserable things. And I mention all of this, again, is that because we need to understand what Paul means when he says, forgetting my past. Paul had plenty to be ashamed of, and many people point out that he wasn't actually speaking like to just the things that he's ashamed of here. He's referring to all of his achievements. So we can understand why Paul would want to let go of the past. We can understand why Paul would want to look back and say, look, I used to persecute people like this. I'm forgetting all that and striving towards what's true, a world-centric view, a view that's focused in on Jesus. But in terms of the positive, this is a passage that helps me sort of understand this. This is in Amos. 
Uh, and again, I'm sorry, you, your bulletins you got were last week's bulletins. We're not sure how the printing company did that. So I had a nice, neat outline for you. So um, the verse in Amos is Amos 6, I believe. Um, and so the writer here says, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilad, and do not journey to Beersheba. Seek the Lord and live. So this is Amos writing to the Jewish people. Now I pull that verse out because this writer is mentioning to the Jews that there are all these incredible things that have happened in your past. Again, stay with me, just mirroring what Paul's talking about, the positive things in his past. These incredible things that have happened in Jewish history. So Bethel is the place where Jacob had his amazing dream and he built an altar there. And there was this beautiful promise. Uh, Gilgah is the place where the Israelites camped uh, out uh, for the first night in the promised land. So God had delivered them. And Beersheba is where Abraham made a treaty and called on the Lord. His son Isaac dug a well and built an altar there. Like these were huge places of Jewish significance. And the writer Amos in the voice of God says, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. All three places held this significance. They were sacred landmarks in Israel's history. As a people, it would make sense that they would want to return back to the places that were good and beautiful in their past. Why would God tell them not to go there? Because God isn't there anymore. Like, there were amazing things that had happened. There were monuments that were built. And, and, and Paul's saying, actually, yeah, all of, or sorry, not Paul, the writer Amos is saying, actually, that's not where God is anymore. Because if we look out throughout Jewish history, there was a like, like common, common sense or desire for them to turn back, to go to the places where God had worked and, and live in comfort there. It was really hard for the Jewish people, if you knew any bit of the story, to move forward, to, to trust God, the trust that it wasn't better back then. All right, this isn't just about an ancient people, is it? Like, this is us. Like, it was better there. It was better then. College was way better than now. Right, it, 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 that year in high school, that job, that when my kids were only that age, when we weren't going through this financial, like, things were better there, and so we kind of in some way want to return back to certain circumstances that we can actually control. So Paul's got this positive thing. If we go back to Paul, He's like, look, I have these incredible things that make me me. I am the most religious man ever. I am in a bloodline that lines up with the kings. It's really hard. Like, I could take an hour to really unpack the significance of that. I need you to trust me. Like, Paul has reasons to boast. I am the guy when it comes to what it means to truly be right with God and religious in all the beautiful ways. He's like, I consider that nothing compared to what has now happened. And then, again, we look back at the fact that Paul has persecuted people. And in some way, he looks back and he goes, yeah, that stuff that is no good, like I, I, I move past that. There's a sense of he's able to reframe and relook at his story. Apparently, apparently, Paul's vision or version of forgetting the past is different than ours. Paul's way of saying, hey, forget the past, strain forward, strain towards what's happening next is different than the way we forget the past. How many of you find it easy to just shut off and forget everything that you've experienced in your life and move forward past that? All right, we kind of work up the energy. I could have so given that sermon this morning. Like, push forward, forget it, it doesn't matter, block it out. Like, it, you're foolish to even go back there, but it, it's not the way Paul forgets his past. He's saying, I see my past in a whole new way. 
When I experienced Christ's love and Christ's forgiveness, new identity, it was radically transforming. I see everything in a new light. He reinterprets his past. He reinterprets what's happened in his past and saying, actually, all that stuff, whether negative, again, some writers say, some scholars who write on this go, no, Paul's not even talking about anything negative. He sees it all as positive. And a lot of other writers go, no, no, he clearly he persecuted Christians. He's writing to them. This has to be in there. Either way, the things in his past, he is somehow re-envisioning in light of what's coming next. Because he tells us about his past. Now, this all has to do, if you've been really confused and Jewish people and Bathsheba and what was that word he said? Up until this point, like just click in now for a second. When we look at our past, we do it through all sorts of filters, we look back at our past through all sorts of filters. And there are really trivial ways that we, we look back on our past, and there are incredibly serious ways. Now, Paul, I, I want to argue, is actually doing this in a very serious way. He's looking back at his past, reinterpreting it, re-understanding it in light of Jesus and looking forward. And it's informing where he's going. But there are trivial ways we can do this too. And I think this might help get at what I'm trying to drive home here is, is we need to have a proper understanding of how we look backwards and how we look forwards. Um, so here's one way I'd like to do this. Here's a trivial way. Uh, so that's me to the left. I know it's a little dark. Sorry. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. I, I tried to find a more awkward photo, but I realized I was just kind of a good dresser. Uh, those are some sweet Folkleys. Faux Oakleys. Anybody have the... the Anyone still rocking the Folkleys? Yeah, now it's like the, uh, anyway. So uh, I had the like really big cargo shorts, right? Really, really like wide bottoms, like hanging out over the vans. You can't really see them. Uh, that, that hair that looks a lot lighter, if you can see it, that's all sun in, baby. Yeah, I used to have hair. I was hoping, my, my sister has all these awkward photos of all of us, and she didn't have this one. But I had like the hair parted in the middle, like coming down over the side, right? Right, which, you know, that's, that's fine. It was pretty long. Like, no hatred. I know some of you still rocking that look. It's great. But underneath, I had sun end. So I had this sort of like blonde half buzz underneath and then the hair coming over top. 90s, anybody? <laughs> Reality bites. Like, I wanted like Kurt Cobain. Like, no? Okay. I was not as cool as Kurt Cobain, but he was the dude. Next slide. Uh, this is another picture, again, sort of hard to see. Uh, but the, the big, fat, like, really, like, blue-gray tie is great. My pants and my shirt, like, everything I wore was way, way, way too big. Because that was sort of, like, in to let everything else hang off you. You know what I'm talking about? Next slide. There's a great blog, if you can see this, called uh, Awkward Family Photos. All right, like to drill this home a little bit more. Um, so this is one when I want to meet these people now and, and what is their instinct when they look back on a photo like this? Next slide. Uh, this is a, a pretty solid one. Uh, specifically like the poses was more the emphasis in this one. Um, I don't even know how to do that one. Uh, but we look back, you know, the high, weirdly enough, I shouldn't have probably chosen this because those jeans are sort of back. Do you know what I'm talking about? The like really high-waisted acid wash some of you are like, what is wrong with these photos? These are great. <laughs> Next slide. This one's, yeah, there's no, I just put that up because it was funny. The kid had a, yeah. <laughs> Next slide. Is that the last one? Oh, and this one. When we, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> the hat in the corner. I had this thing in the back of my mind as I was selecting these photos. I was like, 
I wonder if like somebody here, like this was them. Like what are the chances that they send this in? Awkwardphotos. or awkwardfamilyphotos.com if you're looking for it. You can uh, leave this up for a moment. <laughs> no, don't leave it up. <laughs> what we do with our past, this is the trivial way we have lenses that we look back. Right? Our impulse is to instantly reinterpret the past. And we have a trajectory, right? We have a, a way of thinking when it comes to uh, fashion, particularly. I would argue that most of us assume, most, not all, that when we look back at photos and we laugh, if some of you were to post, I really encourage you to like post your like most awkward like teenage photos. We look back and we laugh. We interpret our past fashions by laughter. And if there was like a, 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 a scale or a graph of like time on the bottom, like the years going by and coolness at the top, we generally think, no matter what age you are, that you are like, we're getting more with it, right? Really, it's just fashion trends changing. We, so we laugh and we say things like, oh, that was really cool back then, right? Your parents have done this. There's a great blog, by the way, Dads are the Original Hipsters. Have you ever been to this blog? Go to this blog. I've, I, we, my sister and I have wanted to upload photos of my dad. Like, he's got the short, like, sh- really short shorts and, like, the tight T-shirt and the big hair. And he's like, oh, man, he looks like the West Side embodied. But it was, like, somehow awesome for everyone to dress like that back then. So when we look at the scale... This is how we generally interpret it. So a trivial filter for us to understand our past is we look back and we go, yeah, it was funny. We, we, we interpret it through the lens of laughter. It's funny that I look like that. It's funny that I chose to dress like that. And we generally think of, well, we're moving forward. And so we reinterpret what we've done in the past as, well, I'm much more with it. And now we can laugh at it. Now, there are much more serious ways that we actually interpret where we're going. Because the assumption with this is that we're actually moving forward. Now, Paul is taking his most grievous and destructive acts against another person, persecuting Christians, and he's taking the things that he could count as gain, like the really great religious things that he was a part of, the things that he could rest on as high achievements, and he's running them through a new lens. Paul is basically saying that you have to understand my worldview is so distorted that I took responsibility for the deaths of people. I sought out to destroy Christians. You've got to understand I had achievements around me just by the very nature of where I was born. But now I've met Jesus and I see everything different. The very thing that I would hide or the very thing that I would use to boast or try to go back to, I now actually tell you, and, and Cheryl, this is a way of saying, look at how massive the grace of God is and look at how big a deal the resurrection is. Because remember, this is all nestled in Paul being like freaked out with joy about the fact that Jesus has risen again, that there is new life, that the kingdom of God is now breaking forth in the midst of this one, that there's a new way things operate, that you don't have to be anxious or scared anymore. You don't have to have an ounce of shame because your identity is wrapped up in Jesus because you have no fear in death. Jesus is Lord, and there's something actually new happening in the world. He's going, in light of this, the good and the bad, I counted as I mean, I counted as loss, right? We talked about this last week. He counts it as garbage. But he's saying, when I look back, I'm running that stuff through the filter of what Jesus has done now. He says his love is even for me. And so I want to land this teaching with this word phronesis, naturally. That's where I end all teachings with an odd Greek word. Phronesis is, is I think, what Paul is doing throughout this letter. 
a few things in defining this. He uses this four times in the letter. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. So the word phronesis there is in the word feel. It's right for me to phronesis this way about you. So one time phronesis is interpreted as feel. The next time, chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So when he says being like-minded, he's using the word phronesis. I'm going to tell you in a moment why this is so interesting. So he's used this word to define, it's been translated two different ways. Make my joy complete by phronesis, having the same love. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says your attitude should be the same as Jesus. Attitude here is phronesis. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 15, all of us who are mature should take a view of such things. And this is what we're about to get to. This is where we are now in the text. All of you who are mature should take a view of such things as phronesis. So like-minded, attitude, feel, same Greek word translated different ways. As far as I can tell... All of the times that this word appears in Philippians, and there's more, I just cite those up to where we are. In it not being translated the same way, we actually see something that's happening in Paul's thinking about how we translate all the stuff that's happening in our life. So, a little bit of classical philosophy, because you're awake just that much. Phronesis, the word is deeply established in classical philosophy. Uh, one writer says, phronesis is the capability to consider the mode of action in order to deliver change, especially to enhance the quality of life. Aristotle says that phronesis is not simply a skill, however, as it involves not only the ability to decide how to achieve a certain end, but also the ability to reflect upon and determine that end. The phrase that stands out that helps us interpret this, for those of you who, who aren't up on your classical philosophy, is mode of action. There's a mode of action. One pastor says that phronesis is like the pattern, the way of thinking. It's a pattern of feeling and a pattern of acting. And so what Paul is doing with this word is saying, there's thinking like Christ, there's feeling like Christ, and there's acting like Christ. Paul's saying, I want your attitudes towards the world to be changed into a mind, new mindset, a new pattern of thinking, a new pattern of feeling, a new pattern of acting. When things happen to you, we're processing it through a brand new lens. When we look back at our past, we're actually processing these things through what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. A new way of thinking. Paul is showing them then here, this passage that we're in, what this actually looks like. He's saying, hey guys, I used to persecute Christians. I used to be a Jew of Jews, the most religious ever. But now I understand they mean nothing in light of what Jesus has done and is doing. He wants the church, this outpost of, of, of heaven, this place in Rome, he wants this church to see the world this way. What would it be like, can I ask you this this morning, what would it be like if your worst sins, your worst sins that you carry with you, and your greatest accomplishments were all in their right place, were all in their right place in their head, they were filed correctly, like we, we could look back on them and we knew where they fit in light of what Jesus has done. Because we do not have the resources inside ourselves to do this. We do not have the resources inside ourselves to just kind of will ourselves into a better mindset for the future. Any of you who struggle with anxiety, any of you who struggle with depression, any of you who just are sort of like so in the moment, you're like of no good at all, 
Like you don't even, you don't think about anything else because this is actually the way you cope. It's just like dial out, be here. You no know, vision for like, like wherever you're at on the spectrum of unhealthiness and we're all there. Like we don't have the resources inside ourselves and this is why when we begin to understand the world through the lens of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, it changes everything. So this is where we land the plane because Paul goes on. I strain towards what's ahead and he says, all of us then who are mature should take a view of such things. So you should think like I think is what he's saying. Pretty bold. If on some point you think differently, then God too will make that clear to you. Look, I'm not here to beat you over the head. By the way, we at Sanctuary are not here to beat you over the head. Like this should be a safe place for you to explore truth. He's like, look, if, if you don't get this, if you don't like this, if this is strange, don't. Like, just, just God will make it clear to you. He's, he trusts that. Verse 16, only let us live up to what we've already attained. You can only live into what you have taken hold of. Verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destination is destruction, their gods, their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Like they've missed it. Their mindset is on stuff that doesn't matter on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And remember, the Bible's version of heaven, what we understand about heaven is a renewed earth, a reclaimed, renewed, restored, everything put back together. The game has changed. And Paul is saying, look, what, what has happened in the way in which this phronesis, I have re-understood and reinterpreted my past, like it's actually a model for you to look at, to begin to live the way I'm living. Like come sit at my table with all of my shame. A pastor friend of mine uh, preached a sermon, and I, I thought about stealing this from him, but I didn't have enough time to put it together. And he had people throughout the sermon uh, just carrying large blocks and boards around with him. Just as he was preaching, like no context. Just people walking up and down the aisles with big, like, like carrying big pieces of wood and big cinder blocks. And at the very end, uh, he builds a big table in the front. They all like assemble it at the very end. And this image was, look, this is all of the, 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 the shame and guilt and hurt and brokenness we so often carry around with us. And we don't allow God to make a table that others can sit at. We don't allow God to actually take this moment, take all these things that we're carrying and rebuild them into something beautiful. And he, he pulls a great communion table analogy out of it. I love that picture. What Paul is saying in this section about, look, follow me. Like what I'm doing, what we're a part of, come with me. I'm modeling this phronesis, this reinterpreting what has happened in light of what Christ has done. When we turn our attention to the fact that, that there is a new life, when we turn our attention to the fact that we do not have to fill in the blank all the things that come with the brilliance and beauty of the gospel, we can actually invite other people to come sit with us at our table. We can actually invite other people to come sit and experience the love and grace of God. And we have the freedom with each other, with our community, to bring our deepest, darkest things in our past forward because we know what Christ has done. When we, have, when we struggle with what it means to be anxious, like we don't even know what it means to be anxious anymore because our, our minds are set on what we know and where we know this world is going. 
what we know that we are a part of, that we know that we will be taken care of, that we know there is no need for anxiety, the more and more we do that, we actually can invite other people then into our lives and allow the broken things in our past to be used for good. We need to come to an understanding that the things that you're most burdened with and don't know what to do with, we can build something with that. Something that will better the world. Something that will point other people towards the person of Jesus. And we need to trust that Christ can do this through us. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. With this understanding in mind of what Paul means by forgetting, he says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So lastly, there's an ache here. Right? We talk about everything I've just shared really ultimately rests in the work of Jesus. This is what God has done. Like your persecution, the way you've killed, like this awful, awful brokenness in your past and all these things are actually really great about your past. Don't return there. God's not there. God has forgiven them, set you free. Carry those things in the healthiest way into your future. There's all of that. But Paul uses a very proactive word here. Strain towards what is ahead. That is an action. You can make a choice. You can strain towards what is ahead or you cannot. Right? Let's not slip into some weird ideology that says if I just kind of sit back and let God do what God's going to do. Like that's not in the text. That's not orthodox. That's not there. Strain towards what is ahead. He's saying in light of what only God could do and God did, then we begin to strain towards what is ahead of us. There is an ache and a pushing. It's Paul's understanding of what has happened. Again, he's talking about the resurrection here at Easter. That's causing him to see the good and the bad and the ugly. The things that he could rest on and the things that he's ashamed of as not worth anything compared to the goal of simply knowing Jesus. Whenever I hear this, and I've heard this and seen this verse so many places, I always think of, of, uh, of like full court, like preventative defense versus like the full court press. Anybody? Basketball? No? I like to throw a sports analogy in every once in a while for everyone who's tired of all my art ones or music ones. This is what I always think of, right? The difference, for those of you who are not familiar with basketball, the difference between a preventative defense is as people are coming in, right? Like you want to make sure that they don't score. The point of where you're at is that people do not score. And so you hang back. You actually hang back and you wait. And you make sure that no one like makes a basket, you're not actually being proactive and trying to steal the ball so much as, although that would be a great benefit at this point in the game, is that you are hanging back and actually like you just kind of want to fortress everything up. When you're doing a full court press is when your defense is actually a sort of offense. The other team has the ball, but you are doing everything possible as you're defending against your own basket to get the ball back. There is an offensive form of defense. And this, in some way, is my like kind of sloppy analogy for talking about what Paul is doing here in straining towards what is ahead. Paul is, is, takes seriously, we see the words of, of uh, John the Baptist talking about the kingdom of heaven is going forcefully forward. Like, are we playing a kind of offense 
Are we really like when we're talking about straining towards the goal of Jesus? Is this is this actually um, happening when it comes to how we view dating? Is this happening when it comes to how we view our finances? Are we relating reactively or proactively with our friends who are influencing us? Are we working for a paycheck or are we stewarding our God-given gifts, pursuing God's dream for us? Like, are we trying to break even spiritually, like by avoiding sins? Like, is this just like moral management or are we actually pushing towards what is next? I sometimes really struggle when we sing because we sing these epic songs about what it means to take hold of all that we have in Jesus, right? And then we leave unchanged. Like we, we actually vocalize, we actually get together and sing songs and we are not taking in any way seriously the reality that if we were to take hold of that, like what would happen? If we were to take hold of the fact of what Jesus has said is true, every time we've seen anybody do that through history, it's changed everything. Everything. And we don't do it. There's an actual action here. I think of budgeting, right? It's the same kind of thing. We budget our money. It's not just like a defensive posture. We're proactively looking of like how can we organize ourselves in such a way in our finances that this is being shaped for the kingdom of God. Paul's words about forgetting the past. Paul's words about straining for it toward the future. This all goes back to the truth that God, that Christ, I'm sorry, does help us to make peace with our past. Like looking at an old silly photograph. And we find that we can tolerate what we were. We feel better about where we are, but we strive for what we are to become. This is what the Bible does for us. It, it destroys the myths in our life. It destroys the filters that are unhealthy, that are not beautiful, that are not true. It actually wrecks the vision in which we see the world and say, actually, we are a part of something else. All those things that would be painful regrets and unspeakable words, all the reasons we have for false confidence, all this stuff, it reminds us when we look at Jesus that grace and peace are real and that Christ can make a table out of our story, invite others to it, and that Christ gives us the strength and energy to strain towards what truly matters that we don't live passive lives, that our community and our church are not, are not, these are not a passive place that we're in, that we're taking hold of the goal of knowing Christ and recognizing this is where we find our full identity and full humanity. There's so much more to say about this, but as we head into a time of worship and of communion, um, I think the thing I was most excited about in looking at this text is having a moment that I know this isn't for everyone, but just a moment where I've, I really believe, I'm just going to be honest, I believe that some of you have literally never thought about some of this stuff. I don't mean like the history. I don't mean looking at the text. I mean actually like taking a moment and try to look at the things that you're actually governed by. Realizing that you still look at Easter and the cross and the person of Jesus as moral, sort of like a deistic, like, I don't know, behavior control. <laughs> like this is the way to live, like a nice life. Jesus could give a crap about your nice life. He wants you to know him because it will literally shift your dreams and your vision and what's next. 
It's beautiful. It's powerful. And again, we've seen it over and over and over through history, through the great social causes, through the great movements of prayer. When people, when a community of people have taken hold of what it means to be an outpost of Jesus in a city like ours, to be transformed by that kind of love, then all the baggage that we carry, we, as far as I know, no one has like persecuted any like particular ethnic group in this room. But Paul has that kind of baggage on him. And as far as I know, none of you are like religious rock stars. And Paul has that kind of baggage, like good stuff. And like the Jews, he's like, look, don't return that to that. This is where God is. This is what God has done now. This is where you're called to be. Strain towards what God has now done and where you are at. Strain towards the beauty that you have in him. All of that brokenness that you carry around, I don't know what it is, whatever shame or baggage or, or hurts that you have floating around in your past, like reinterpreting those through the new lens that actually like that kind of anxiety, I get that it's real and it's, some of you need to see counseling and all that stuff is great, but the end goal of all of that is what? Like why would you be anxious when God's gonna put it all back together? Why would we, why, why? Why do we let that stuff govern us? Why do we play it safe when it comes to work? Why do we do this stuff? when we don't take hold of the dreams that God has for us. I don't know how this plays out, and I would love to give you a list of tangible things for you to consider, but I would just ask you for the first time to go, God, where am I not forgetting what is in the past? Where am I not running that through the filter of you, that I am loved far more than I could ever, ever imagine, that you have a vision and plan for my life, that I don't need to fear death anymore, and that I can be a part of the movement of Jesus in the world. Where do I not trust that? Where do I not run my past crap through that filter? And where am I not straining towards what's next? Where have I become complacent? Where do I look at the words of Paul here and go, that's cute for you, man. But I'm doing all right. Like, no disruptions here. Doing all right. So as we come to the table, I know some of you have never like said, yeah, I actually want to begin trusting Jesus. Some of you have never had anyone come alongside you and began to show you the way of Jesus. I would really like to do that. We have some leaders and some home groups that would really love to do that. We'd love to help you connect what might be happening in your, in your heart to your head. We'd love to, we'd love to actually like pray with you. There'll be some people over there to pray. But let this like today, this morning's walk to the communion table be for some of you the first time you go, I'm actually interested. I actually want to know what it means to trust Jesus and, and allow somebody to just pray with you. Let us know. Like race to the front and take hold of this beautiful picture that we have of the bread and wine, of restoration and renewal in him, of the forgiveness of sins. For some of you, the complacency, let this be a moment of conversion where we live up to what we've already attained. We believe everything. This is like the world's most boring sermon. Because you're like, yeah, really, again, Andrew? But we're not actually living into this. We're not actually letting this take hold of our past. And we're not, we don't have a posture of straining towards what's next. Let this walk to the communion table be a moment of going, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're marking this moment as the day I shift some things where I actually trust that what Jesus said is true. We actually pray and say, God, God, I, I need you now. Let's pray. God, I offer just in word uh, the, the words that the band's about to sing. 
Here is our heart. Speak what's true. Like here, here we are, and, and we want truth. I don't know one person in this room, even if they are like freaked out, like wherever they're at on the spectrum, Lord, they, they want truth. We want truth. We, we want to know what's true. We want to take hold of that which is good and beautiful and right in the world. And so I ask in this moment, like we just get to experience um, all that, that Paul is striving for. We get to experience what Paul has experienced. His past running up and like being hit head on by your grace and your love and your peace and your beauty. Might we, as we come to the table, acknowledge that you have done it all, that it's only in you, Lord, that we can be changed. It's only through you and your work, Lord, that we can take hold of, of, of all of this. In your name we pray. Amen.